Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Christian Owens, founder and CEO of Paddle. And I think it's the whole crux of like why your product is valuable or your business is valuable is dependent on a single feature. That's really dangerous. However, if it's dependent on a fundamentally different way of thinking about doing the thing, that's great. That gives you a clear, strong differentiation between those folks to be able to go and compete. But there is a difference between like competing on that feature function, kind of, oh, we have the magic bullet, which is a complete myth and never exists versus we're trying to take the same problem and almost just flip it on its head and think about it from a different direction. This is Christian. He's a tech entrepreneur on a mission. He learned to build websites when he was 12 years old. He dropped out of school when he was 16 and started his first software company. Within 18 months, he grew that business to 4 million pounds sterling. And it was through running that business that he encountered the problem that he's now trying to solve with Pedal. In 2012, Christian founded Pedal with his co-founder Harrison. Its mission? To help SaaS companies navigate the revenue journey at every stage. Pedal offers SaaS companies a completely different approach to their payment infrastructure. Instead of assembling and maintaining a complex stack of payment-related apps and services, Pedal acts as the merchant of records for its customers. It's thereby taking away 100% of the pain of payment fragmentation. It's faster, safer, simpler, and above all, way better. This is a short story of a company that grew its valuation to $1.4 billion in just 10 years. And that inspired me. And hence I invited Christian to my podcast. We explored the journey that Christian went through to claim unicorn status. He elaborates on the holistic mission principles that underpin his business and how that has helped to build defensible differentiation and the foundation to scale from the start. Lastly, he talks about what it takes to get customers happily pay a premium for products that are not exactly sexy. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how to avoid marketing teams writing checks that product cannot cash. Secondly, why you should avoid making the unsexy sexy if your product 
is not the coolest thing in the world. Thirdly, why you shouldn't focus on trying to create the one magic bullet of a feature and what to do instead. And lastly, how guarantees where you promise to pay for damage create a mindset internally that can become your competitive advantage. Well, hi Christian, thank you for being a guest on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's been a pleasure. And when people came to me and proposed for you to be on the podcast, I was like, that's a good one. And I really want to have that one. But before, before we just started, I already mentioned to you that I've been following you for a while. I wouldn't say since 2012, but you're definitely uh, very visible in this space. And particularly because of like how you go to market and, and yeah, how you go about it. And I love that. It really fits what I've also been writing about in my book, The Remarkable Effect. And you take a number of those boxes. So glad that you're here. Before we start talking about Paddle, just a little bit about you. If you had to describe yourself as an entrepreneur and use two or three characteristics, what could would come out? I've never done anything else. So I started my first business when I was 14, started Paddle when I was 18. And everything I've ever done has been trying to solve a problem that I had. So I try and be as pragmatic as possible. I just try and see a problem, build a solution, iterate on it over time, and hopefully make it as, as good as it possibly can be. There's no sort of real formula other than that. That's the formula to follow. <laughs> it is as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now let's bridge that to, uh, because I mean, the word pragmatic is exactly what I, I mean, I didn't use the word, but that's what I would see also on your website. It is written in such a way, I mean, you communicate and not only your website, it is in everything I see that it feels like, okay, we know what, you're, what, what problem you have. We build something to solve it. Here's how we solve it. This is the promise we have. This is the guarantee we give. And this is what you pay for it. And I'm not saying that you are the cheapest, you know, possibly you are the most expensive, but it still is something that, that people want to pay for and gladly want to pay for. Yeah. I think there's so much like marketing buzz and sort of obfuscation and sort of things like that. I think taking an approach where you say what you do, you say what you don't do, and you tell people how much it's going to cost and sort of give evidence as to kind of what other people's experiences have been, which can be tricky because if you don't have a very good product, the experiences aren't going to be great and you need to work on them and things like that. But I think there's real value in just being straightforward with people, especially if you're in an environment where you're building a product like we are that isn't the coolest thing in the world. Like kind of payments and billing and invoicing and taxes and fraud management is not the sexiest product category in the world. And I think that a lot of businesses fall into a trap of they try and make the unsexy sexy by lots of cool graphics and fun buzzwords and things like that, as opposed to kind of being like, yeah, we know this is unsexy, but it's really important. And we're just going to talk about it like that and sort of use plain English and real words and sort of things like that and tell you what it's going to do. Because I think the last thing you want to have to do, especially when thinking about something that's sort of an unsexy product is, which I think is the trap that a lot of people fall into, is put out their messaging that people have to unpick and sort of decipher into being like, what does this thing actually do? And the nature of it being an unsexy product I think means you want to spend as little time thinking about it as possible and using plain English and sort of clear case studies and things like that means that a buyer or a customer has to spend as little time as possible thinking about it, which is what fundamentally our goal. Exactly. By the way, even for sexy products, that's still the route to go. Yes, <laughs> true. Be clear, be concrete, crisp, and so on. 
Well, I mean, for people that don't know Pedal, let's talk a bit a little about that. When you started the company in 2012, what was that problem that you saw that was screaming for a solution? Yeah, so, so my background was I taught myself to code when I was relatively young, when I was kind of like 13, 14. Started my first software company when I was about 14. When I taught myself how to code, I went basically door to door in the town I grew up in, offering like local businesses websites. Because I was like, I need to apply this thing that I've learned in some way. So started doing that. Somebody asked me for an invoice, didn't know what an invoice was. So that was like the first software challenge I had. I was like, oh, I'm going to build some invoicing software so I can send these people I'm making websites for an invoice. So that was what I started doing when I was sort of 14, 15, managed to scale that company into about four or five million in revenue over about 18 to 24 months. And really, that was the point at which we hit this challenge that we now try and solve at Paddle, which was we were building this invoicing software. It was relatively low priced. It was targeted at like freelancers and people like that. And it was like a hundred bucks a year. It was not very expensive. And obviously it's become a buzzword now. Like it was as pure as you can imagine, product-led growth. So that means that we were international. We were in every country, we were in every currency. People wanted to pay for it in lots of different ways and very quickly found ourselves trying to figure out how we deal with taking payments from people and recurring billing and paying taxes and wanting to support every currency and payment method that people wanted to pay with. And sort of as we got a little bit bigger, it was dealing with fraud and chargebacks and disputes and sort of all of this stuff. And couldn't really find a solution in the market that I could just go and buy that solved that whole sort of array of problems and instead could find lots of individual point solutions that typically you would go and buy six, seven, eight different things and kind of string them all together. So that was really the genesis behind Paddle was I had this challenge when I was building this invoicing software company, which was how do we deal with commerce and recurring billing and invoicing and all this stuff globally? Couldn't find a solution. So built Paddle to try and solve that both initially for myself and then for today, thousands of other software companies as well. Exactly. Now, that's always interesting how that starts. And what I also see is you already touched upon that, that it starts with one problem and you solve it. And then there's all kind of other problems connected to that, mm -hmm. which yeah, people often don't realize. And they say, this is not my problem. If you box yourself, it's what a lot of times I see. I'm an invoicing solution. We don't deal with fraud. You know, that's yeah. a different category. You decided that you are actually doing that and taking care yeah. and actually guaranteeing that, okay, if there's fraud, it's on our bill. Yeah, well, I think the easiest way to find a problem to solve is to have a problem. And I think you're exactly right in terms of a lot of people um, build a thing, a solution to a thing or kind of a, a thing that has value or a product, realize that people are having a problem or they themselves are having a problem while they're doing that. And then they kind of ignore that thing as, oh, that's someone else's job. And obviously, this goes both ways. If like you can't possibly tackle every single problem that you encounter, otherwise you will be spread too thin and things like that. But genuinely, like kind of when you discover a problem that exists that no one else is really trying to solve, and you're uniquely positioned to go and try and solve it, like those are the things that you go like all in on. That's the like where you bet the farm and sort of try and do those things because. I can almost guarantee if you're having the problem, someone else is as well. And if nobody's out there solving it, like that is product market fit in a nutshell right there. Exactly. I actually wrote a post about it this morning about this whole thing of the definition of product market fit. It's a coincidence in itself, but it always appears to be a problem that seems to be a moving target for many. 
kind of going back to that point of like, how do you avoid spreading yourself thin and ensure that you make the decisions around the areas where you can truly make a difference? Have you got any formula on that or was it by iteration? I think iteration is really important in any of these things in terms of starting with a kernel of an idea and then gradually kind of iterating on it and adding to it and removing from it over time in order to kind of get to a more polished kind of finished version. I think the crux of it is being really honest with like yourself around the product you're building. I think in oftentimes we come up with an idea, we go and Google the idea, and then we see there's 12 other people building the idea. There are probably like three different approaches for how you can deal with that Google search. One is, oh, everybody's doing it. I'm not going to bother. Two is, oh, like kind of this convincing yourself that there is one magic bullet of a feature that none of these things have that you should go and build. And that will be the reason that you're successful. That's never true. And then there is really deeply thinking about and evaluating what these other 12 people are doing and really trying to understand, is there still a gap? Is the problem that I am trying to solve still unsolved? And if so, like, that's the moment in which you pounce and that's the way you go and build. I think too many people conflate the second thing with the third thing. They go, oh, there are all of these tools out there, but none of them have time tracking or none of them have a Slack integration or none of them sync with my Salesforce. That's going to be my differentiating factor. And I think if the whole crux of like why your product is valuable or your business is valuable is dependent on a single feature, that's really dangerous. However, if it's dependent on a fundamentally different way of thinking about doing the thing, and just it just so happens that your product then ends up competing with 12 other people, that's great. That gives you a clear, strong differentiation between those folks to be able to go and compete. But there is a difference between like competing on that feature function, kind of, oh, we have the magic bullet, which is a complete myth and never exists versus we're trying to take the same problem and almost just flip it on its head and think about it from a different direction. Love it. Music to my ears, this is exactly how I think about it myself. It's hard to do, but it's the way it's, that where where it matters. Yeah, it's particularly hard to do because it means going through a lot of these cycles where you go, oh, actually that problem that I have, people are trying to solve and they're solving it pretty well. And yep. the thing I'm going to build is only going to be an incremental improvement on the way that they're solving it. And that's probably not the area in which I want to build a business. But that's why it's hard. It's because we have to like get really excited about something, do a bunch of research, and then get gradually less excited about it because we realize that somebody else is already doing it. And that's fine. Like You've gone and justified that you're a person that has good ideas. <laughs> like yep. You just need to continue exercising that muscle until you find the kind of overlap between what is a good idea that nobody else is doing in that way. That's the point at which sort of, yeah, go for it. Now, I mean, you were the founder of this company. You started this, like you said, 14, 15 years, and it grew from there. Now you're a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How do you keep that mindset in your company? Because, I mean, you cannot control it all by yourself anymore. Yeah, are we you have, sure um, that in the next five, 10 years, you stay at that level where you are right now in terms of keep surprising yeah. the market? Like every company, especially of our scale, we obviously have like values as a business, like cultural values that we hire and buy by. And those are really important for the types of people and the behaviors that we want in the business. But we also have this other thing, which we call kind of almost like mission principles. And there's only two of them. And it's sort of like around like 
if our mission is going to be true, which is to help software companies run and grow their businesses better, if that's going to be true, what are the two principles that we need to follow in order to make that outside of the cultural value stuff? And our two, do it for you. We don't believe in building products that help people solve their own problem. We believe in just solving the problem. Because so many tools are given to you to help you scratch your own itch rather than just scratching it for you. And the second is be the hope, most helpful brand in sales. If we look at the, the kind of crossover between those two things, products that do it for you and us being the most helpful brand in SaaS, and part of being the most helpful brand in SaaS is one, speaking clearly and plainly. And two, it's probably putting out content and products and things like that that solely exist to serve the mission of being the most helpful brand in SaaS and not necessarily making as much money as we possibly can. If those things are true, then I think that keeps everybody in the company oriented around building the right products not adding those features because they're a silver bullet. Like our whole product with the idea of do it for you is not necessarily oriented around, oh, we're going to have this really great feature that does this one thing, but we're going to do everything 10 to 12% better than anybody else possibly can. And hopefully we'll have some of those game-changing features along the way as well. But do it for you, most helpful brand in SaaS is how we keep the whole 400 people who are working on Paddle kind of aligned towards sort of, and it's really a framework for how you make decisions. You're prioritizing a feature, you're deciding on a piece of content, you're trying to figure out whether we should charge for something. Does this advance us doing it for you? Does this help us become the most helpful brand in SaaS? The answer to both of those questions is yes, we should probably do it. Let me make a small interruption here. Christian just explained in very simple words what underpins the success of his company. Two holistic mission principles. Do it for you, and being the most helpful brand in SaaS. It is everything for everybody to make the right decisions. And beyond that, it's simple and easy to remember. Hence, it's being used. It's so simple and so powerful. And that it works has Christian proven. It's a trade remarkable software company's master. They have their way to focus on the essence. This streamlined curiosity in the right way allows you to be different, not just better, and create new value possibilities that create desire with the right customers. And with that, you surprise everyone. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the next 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Love that framework. Thanks for sharing that. I think it will inspire a lot of companies. I mean, the reason also why I like it is because it's all about helping your customers make a bigger difference. And once you do mm -hmm. that and you measure yourself around doing that well, then value will come to you possibly in ways that you couldn't even forecast for. It's also the reason I like it. It's also simple enough that people internally hear it twice and they don't forget it. Like Super important. there's so many of these frameworks. It's like, oh, there's these five values or these 19 things on a checklist that need to be true. And it's like, no, does it do it for you? Is it the most helpful brand in SaaS? If yes, go do it. And that allows people to make decisions independently and be autonomous about what they're, how they're going yeah, to make a exactly. decision for your company. Yeah. Which is the only way that you can truly actually scale. Uncomfortable, but it's the only way you can really scale. Yeah, exactly. Well, on that journey, 10 years in the make right now, what has been the mm -hmm. hardest nut to crack as far as you can remember? I think when everything that we've just said is true, when your approach to solving problems is not silver bullet of a feature and it's not kind of 
being fundamentally the cheapest product or giving it away for free or kind of competing on one of these other vectors, like being the cost leader in a marketplace or something like that. When it's truly, we're going to take this way, this tried and true way of doing things, which in our case is buy seven different things, build a team, string it all together and do it yourself. Like when the product you're trying to build, the company you're trying to build is almost the antithesis of that. The hardest thing is we've been on a decade long journey of trying to educate a market, educate a market that the way that they've done it for 25 years, we don't think is correct. And sort of, we don't think it's correct, not because the way that they're doing it is wrong, but it's not correct because we don't believe they should have to do it at all. And so many products position on like, oh, the way you're using this tool, this spreadsheet is incorrect. Use this slightly different spreadsheet or use this slightly different tool. When you're trying to shift the paradigm and say, actually, that just should be completely out of scope. Why should you even have to open the spreadsheet? Then you end up in a place where a lot of your effort is spent on education as opposed to sort of actually just feature comparisons and, and things like that. So that's the hardest thing. It has been the hardest thing for the last 10 years is educating, educating, educating. It will probably be the hardest thing for the next 10 years as well, which is just continuing to educate a market. Is that also because you're staring people in the eyes in the sales process and you realize, or they realize, but this was my job? Like the whole value prop of Paddle is not necessarily... The interesting thing about all of these things, payments, billing, like recurring billing, invoicing, taxes, all of this stuff is... In a lot of companies, if you're doing even like 50 or $100 million a year in sales, like it's no one's job. It's like 20% of like a bunch of people's jobs, but it's no one's like real job to own this thing. Like a finance team sort of may have somebody who deals with tax, like well, a couple of people who deal with tax. But in often cases, there is 17 different types of tax that they're dealing with. International sales tax is probably 20% of like kind of their resources. And then you multiply that by an engineering team. Engineering teams aren't sort of, there's rarely a dedicated engineering team to subscription billing or the payment experience, even though it's one of these areas that can actually have massive uplift from a revenue or conversion perspective in these businesses. It's that job that every year the whole engineering team spends 10 to 20% of that time dealing with, but it's no one's actual responsibility. So for us, like kind of really the person that we're talking to is hopefully our biggest advocate. Because what we're saying is actually that 20, 30, 50, whatever percentage of your time that you're spending on this thing that isn't really that additive to the business, but needs to be done, like you get all that time back. I think that's the way to truly sell products like this is to figure out, even if you're replacing 80% of someone's time, it's not how do I replace 80% of someone's time so that person can get fired. It's how do I replace 80% of that person's time so they can spend that 80% of time on something more effective. And that's really what we're selling. Yeah, that's so true. Well, going to sales then, what are the key lessons that you've learned in selling a solution like this? And I'm bringing in a couple of things that I've recognized along the way, but also again, preparing for this call. A lot of companies make a promise. And the question is whether they can live up to that. What you're really, really strong at is really outlining, and this is how we help you achieve that. And then you start giving guarantees. All of these things, when they happen, it's on us. I actually saw on your pricing page a quote from the CEO of Tailwind, who said, okay, yes, we can use Stripe or PayPal, and we would pay 3.5%, 4.5%. If you look at that in general, like the savings would be minimal if we would go for them. But then he said something really important. Just ask yourself, is any of those savings worth the admin burden 
and opening yourself up to extra scrutiny from the tax agencies. And that is the whole thing around it that you take where Stripe and PayPal just go silent. Partially, it's because it's really hard. Like, it's a really difficult thing to do to sit there and say, like, we don't think you should have to do this. Not only do we not think you should have to do it, we're going to do it for you. And when we do it for you, if we screw it up, then we're going to pay for it. Like, if we do it wrong, if we do it incorrectly, if we are not good enough at doing it, you're not going to pay for any of that we are. And I think, one, that gives people confidence. Two, it helps justify a slightly higher price. But I think the biggest thing that it enables internally is... Our engineering team is probably 150 people at this point. They take their jobs really, really seriously because there is thousands of dollars a second going through Paddle. So it means the smallest mistake, the smallest amount of downtime, any of these things sort of has a huge outsized impact on our customers and our revenue. Sort of like us making those promises externally means that we have to manifest them internally. I think this is another area where you have to have a really tight culture internally of people actually talking to each other because too many times the marketing team is writing checks that the product can't cash. Like they are going out there and making really big promises through learning pages or sales processes or whatever. And the engineering team or the product team or whomever hears about it when the first customer wants to use it. And like we take the entirely opposite approach. Like we have to build this stuff. It has to be resilient. It has to be solid so that we can go out there and make those promises and keep the promises. Very, very strong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you done that from the beginning or has that come at some point where you say, okay, we see all these objections because at the end, if you don't, well, what I see is so many SaaS vendors out there don't give promises at all, just promises. They don't give guarantees at all, just promises. Mm-hmm. Then, you, of course, you have to believe them, which is a trust thing. The moment you just mention it, instantly takes the trust issue away. Yeah. So I think we've done two things. Like one, I think probably in the first year of Paddle, we didn't do this. And you find out very quickly why you need to, which is we probably went from like $2,000 a month in revenue to like $80,000 a month in revenue. And like $78,000 of that revenue was from one customer. And we didn't fulfill these promises and quite rightly they left. And we've never made that mistake again. Like we've always then made it kind of at the forefront and never kind of bitten off more than we could chew from a product perspective since then. So I think that was a really valuable lesson to learn up front. And then the second thing that makes this true is baked into how we price. Like we take a transaction fee. We only make money when our customers make money. And more than that, we only make money when they make money. We have no monthly minimums or fees, and we have no contractual commitment to how long you have to stay on paddle. Like if you sign up, even if you're paying us $100,000 a month, you can cancel tomorrow and you can leave tomorrow. And we have a team of people who will help you migrate somewhere else. And like, we won't make that burdensome for you. So I think that like learning the lesson early on that sort of like when we say something, we have to be able to deliver on it, but then aligning every part of our kind of pricing strategy to the outcomes that our customers are trying to generate. That's been the biggest unlock. There's too many instances where you can make these promises 
especially in SaaS, you can make these promises and then a customer has to pay you $50,000 up front. And as soon as they've paid you the $50,000, where is the incentive for you to actually deliver? Like the incentive comes back in month 11 when we want to renew them. But like for months one through 10, it's not there. Kind of, yo, you signed that customer. Now it's a customer success issue. For us, like we get up every day and we have to earn our money, like by building a good product and being kind of true to our word. And then the second thing is, it's the combination of pricing model and these guarantees is we can very easily, if we don't deal with taxes correctly or deal with fraud correctly or whatever, because our, our fees are, are still relatively low, we charge on average about 5% of kind of revenue. And you compare the underlying payment processing costs, which we pay for you, like you never have another payment fee, foreign exchange transaction, any of that stuff. It means our, like we're making margin on that, but it means that the average amount of sales tax that somebody pays on a transaction globally is about 12%. So if we screw up sales tax, so that's already double the amount of transaction like fees that we have taken. It's this kind of dual thing of like only making money when our customers make money, but then also actually we probably lose two times the amount of money that we've charged a customer if we get it wrong, which is adds a lot of risk to the business, but it also adds a lot of motivation to get it right. Those two things kind of keep us in check. Absolutely. And a lot of companies shy away from it because it's hard and it's risky and no one is asking for it. What I can imagine in the sales cycle, I mean, I came from the ERP world. And of course, when you talk about these ERP cycles, these long demos, and it had to do exactly, everybody had to check according to a certain script that they had built for you. Yeah. Feature check, feature check, feature check. I think the approach that you're taking, but just, just to my assumption, this whole check around whether you have the functionality, yes or no, just moves away because of the guarantees that you give. Is that correct? I think it's partially correct. We certainly get a lot more credit for the features that may be nice to have, like around the edges. That if you're going with a vendor who you're paying them up front, you're doing all this stuff and there is, it's still on them. It's the classic example of a tool that you're using to solve the problem yourself versus a tool that solves the problem for you. If you're a tool that people use to solve the problem themselves, then naturally you have to have all the features because they need all of those features to solve the problem for themselves. Yes, table stakes. Whereas if the actual value prop of the product is we're just going to solve the problem, a lot of customers don't care how the sausage is made. They just care that they get sausages. Like That's the whole point. Yeah. That said, there is table set of functionality when it's like the second order effect of something. Like I want to be able to bill my customers in a certain way. There's mm -hmm. no compromise on that because you can't fundamentally alter someone's business model. There is a threshold, but the threshold is probably lower because of the kind of doing it for you element of that. Exactly. You instantly scored 100 points on those. Looking at the time, I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, which is about I'm on a journey there to uncover what do those companies that we start talking about and keep talking about do different from the ones we don't talk about or stop talking about. I think you're a great example of the first category. What do you believe are secrets to become remarkable in your market and built for lasting impact. Is there anything that you haven't said about that yet and that needs to be added? I think we've covered a lot of it. I think kind of trying to change the way that people think about problems and sort of solve them fundamentally differently versus giving people tools to solve their own problems, I think is a really powerful unlock. It does add challenge and it means you need to kind of like switch up your resources accordingly in order to kind of do it. And the challenge is you spend all of your time educating people versus just sort of feature by feature comparisons and doing fun RFPs that you win. But there is an interesting signal that happens throughout that process to understand if you're doing one versus the other. And the interesting signal if you're doing that is you will lose a lot of deals. And it sounds like a bad thing, 
you'll lose a lot of deals because you're trying to change people's minds about how to do stuff. And fundamentally, it's really difficult to change humans' minds when they, when they have a way of tried and true way of thinking about something. The most interesting thing is you'll lose a lot of deals, but you'll win a lot of deals the second time around if you use that first sort of sales process as an extension of the education process. It's like we have this really interesting phenomenon at Paddle. It's like we will go to a software company that's doing like $50 million a year or $25 million, or whatever the number is. And they'll be making a decision where they usually to build a bunch of this stuff themselves or kind of use Paddle for all of it. And the interesting thing that happens there is in a lot of instances, they go, oh, this thing's 2% more expensive or whatever. Like we're going to build it ourselves. They build it themselves. But like through that sales process, we basically kind of play fortune teller and we go into our crystal ball and we say, that's fine. Really happy for you. Wish you the best of luck. Here is all the stuff that's going to happen to you over the next 12 to 18 months. And we kind of outline everything that's going to happen to them. And then a very high percentage of those people come back 12 to 18 months later and go, holy crap, everything that you told us was completely true. Where do we sign? And the sales cycle on the first time sell what we lose is like six months long. And then the sales type cycle on the second time they come in is literally 10 days because everything that we told them, everything that we went through this education process with magically came true. And it's like, how did you know all of these things? And how did you know this engineer would quit? And how did you know all these things? And we're like, we've seen it 4,000 times. And this is literally why the business exists. It's a classic example of not being able to look at like a headline metric and be like, oh, we suck. Because like, oh, we're only winning 4% of our deals or whatever. Uh, we must not have product market fit. Like maybe your product market fit is so good that people don't understand it. You need to kind of look at this from a slightly different lens in order to understand whether the business is actually viable or not. Obviously, like it may be that actually you just have a 4% kind of close rate and that's really bad and sort of the product isn't good. But it bears, especially when you're trying to fundamentally change the way that people think about a problem and sell a yep. solution that is relatively unique. It means that in a lot of instances, you also have to look at like the metrics that you're using in order to track that and understand it slightly differently as well. And this is one of the things that we found like with Palo, especially selling to larger businesses who've been doing this for a long time. They start in this place of like, oh no, that's completely wrong. We educate them. They come back a second time. We win them almost like very, very high kind of percentage of the time. Yeah. I mean, fantastic anecdote. And it's so true. I remember a couple of those things when I was at Unit 4 as well. And we didn't really have that list of things that will happen, but some people come back and say, okay, no, you're... when we noticed this was happening, we actually started like creating almost this playbook that we would take deals through to try and educate the buyer on what's going to happen. And if you built up enough trust early in the sales process, sometimes they just believe you and they buy it there and then. And that's great, obviously, increases conversion, all this stuff. But if it doesn't, what it does is it sets you up for like, 12 months from now pipeline that you need because you know that those businesses are going to hit these challenges and then come back. One of the things that's why we have the time still want to kind of make one point about is you talked about scale and you already talked mm -hmm. about scale very, very early in your career. When you're 15 and you scaled from, I'm not sure what the number were anymore. What do you believe is really important to start creating scale or maybe it's leverage? I think leverage is really important. I think working on things that actually have an impact. And this is the same way that you can think about raising money from investors as well. It's like, be really honest with the outcome that you want. From 2012, when we had, or 2013, when we had our first interactions with investors, we were going in and we were saying like, we have no desire to be a $10 million a year business and can go and sell for $100 million and sort of do all this stuff. 
Like we genuinely want to be the thing the majority of software companies in the world use to run their business. You have to start with the ambition of doing a lot of these things as well. And I think that just changes your mindset about how you approach problems. Yep. But I think the other thing to do is not necessarily optimize too early. I think one of the things that you end up doing when you get into that mindset of like, we're going to be a billion dollar company is you start initially with putting in processes and automations and things like that as if you're already a billion dollar company. You have no idea what even works yet. Like there is stuff that up until like 18 months ago, people would laugh at us if they found out that we were doing some of it manually. It's sort of like, don't optimize too early because you end up spending so much time on baking in systems and ways of doing things that in all likelihood are going to change five or six times before you get them right. Whether it's a sales process or how you do forecasting or marketing or any of these things, sort of it pays to just put in the effort and do things manually until you get to a point in which they work and then figure out how they scale. That was probably one of the sort of things that we, a lot of the time over Pat we've done right, but probably the biggest mistakes that we've made have been when we've had certainty about something that we were going to do and it actually turns out that wasn't the right thing to do. And we've baked in a system or a way of doing things or an automation that we spent way too long on trying to kind of make that play out. Very strong arguments and very recognizable. I see this a lot around me. Last question. The lessons that you learned being a, well, a first-time entrepreneur, but building a business like this, what would be one do and one don't that you would like to share with other aspiring tech entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that want to take it to the next level? Do just obsessively talk to customers. So often I think we find ourselves in a trap and we don't know what to do or something's not working. And almost 98% of the time, the answer can be found by just talking to enough people and interpreting the response and, and sort of making notes and doing things like that. One don't, and it's going to come back to the thing that I sort of said a second ago, if you're raising money and you're going out to find investors and things like that, don't malign yourself with them by having two different interpretations of what a good outcome looks like, because it might mean that you're able to get the money or the investment or whatever up front very, very quickly. But as soon as you pass that threshold, if they're looking for a return in five years and you're on a 15-year journey, that comes and it blows up. And it blows up five years into your 15-year journey and it puts you in a really difficult situation. Don't make short-term promises on a long-term vision for the purpose of making your short-term life a little bit easier. Fantastic. Thanks for this, Christian. Thank you for sharing the wisdom, sharing the story of your company. I'm highly inspired by what you do and I keep following you and the company going forward. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. And this ends my conversation with Christian. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, Thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Christian Owens, founder and CEO of Paddle. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. 
And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.